0: This is the JomoCast, a podcast about deepening our commitments to the things that matter most and joyfully missing out on the rest. I'm your host, Christina Crook, bringing you interviews with leading creators, thought leaders, and technologists, inspiring us to take action to thrive in a digital age. There's a clever little parable that seems to be experiencing a renaissance lately. I heard it pop up in recent TV shows and articles. It's a 19th century Russian parable called the scorpion and the frog. Maybe you've heard of it, but in case you haven't, here it is. A scorpion and a frog are standing together on one side of a rushing river. The scorpion says to the frog, I can't swim. Will you carry me across the river on your back? I don't know, scorpion. I'm worried you're going to sting me. Don't be worried, says the scorpion. I need help and you can help me. All right, says the frog, and takes the scorpion on his back. The two peacefully make their way across the river until halfway across, the scorpion stings the frog. As they both begin to sink beneath the surface to their deaths, the dying frog says, Now we're both going to die. Why would you sting me? The scorpion replies, Look, frog. You knew I was a scorpion. The moral of the fable and the many versions of it is simple. If you understand the nature of something, you can't fault it for acting in its nature. The technologies that entered our lives over the past 25 years, fundamentally changing our societies, cultures, economies, relationships, and personal lives, didn't come out of nowhere. They weren't researched, created, or given to us for free either. They were created by companies and institutions that are now among the most powerful organizations on earth, in many cases, rivaling the political and economic power of nation states. Smartphones, social media, and the digital marketing ecosystem that forms the attention economy are the brainchildren of business entities operating at a scale and wealth unparalleled by any time in human history. They're here to make a profit and outcompete each other. They don't want to be our friends, our family, or our leaders. They want us to give them our money. Nothing more, nothing less. Look, Frog, you knew I was a corporation. My next guest has seen the inner workings of this vast machinery of high technology, human psychology, and globalized capitalism from the inside at Google. What he saw was enough for him to dedicate the rest of his career to spreading the word through writing, speaking, and activism. This stuff isn't good for us. It's not designed to be. And the people who wield it need to be held more accountable. Be informed. Be intentional. Know the consequences. Pick up a scorpion. Get stung. James Williams is the author of Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy, one of the best books I have ever read on this subject, and co-founder of the Time Well Spent campaign, now known as the Center for Humane Technology, which recently released the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Time Well Spent is a project that aims to steer technology designed towards having greater respect for users' attention, goals, and values. Previously, James worked inside of Google for 10 years, where he received the Founders Award, the company's highest honor. And today, he's a frequent speaker, consultant for companies and governments, and is a regular commentator on technology issues in the media. I spoke to him from his home in Moscow. You co-founded the Time Well Spent Movement. Now the Center for Humane Technology, led by Tristan Harris, in part to educate governments, businesses, and the public about the deliberately addictive and polarizing effects of social media. Can you tell us about those early days?
1: Sure. So, um, so my path through all of this is that you know I had a humanities background um, in university, and then I, I kind of went into tech and was working at Google. And one of the the pieces of the narrative, you know, there at Google that that I that really struck a chord with me was this idea that we kind of broadly being, you know, the tech industry were kind of changing advertising, this thing that had been a distractor, a manipulator of people, um, kind of playing to people's baser motives. You know we were realigning it with people's intentions. Um and I think, you know, I, I worked when I was at Google primarily on search and search ads. Um and so but I think what I saw is as the you know kind of the web matured and, you know, these tech titans kind of emerged you know out of the mist was was just kind of that you know we were doing the same thing as before uh the internet in, in terms of just kind of you know persuasion as a business model manipulation as a business model but it was just sort of amped up like kind of times a million because of you know all of the kind of the the algorithmic uh, logic the kind of the just the proliferation of data um everything that we know now about you know human psychology and decision making cognitive biases all this kind of thing um and so i uh when i was at google i actually so i was in the u.s in seattle and i went over to uh to oxford to, sort of to do my phd on this because i i felt that there's something fundamentally wrong uh, with the, the landscape as i saw it um and i continued to work kind of part-time for google in the first few years of that and so during that time um yeah tristan and i got connected there's sort of a presentation he had sent around that is you know by now i think probably seen by a lot of a lot of people but um so we we really connected and kind of um you know I feel like we we both felt like each other kind of got the you know what was at stake and um and so we we worked together and kind of both left around the same time and um time well spent was sort of this i guess kind of earlier instance of yeah, what he's doing now um you know extremely well in terms of advocacy, and so you know it, it's been really great to see kind of this issue that you know nobody was really talking about it back then. And we would kind of have to convince people that this stuff was important. You know, you should have to, we should, we should, we should care about, you know, well-being, autonomy, uh, you know, but at at the time, I think a lot of the ethical, you know, discussion and attention was was on things like, uh, you know, privacy or security, you know, which are important things. But sort of the, the core thing that a lot of these platforms were doing, which is, you know, shaping the human will and, you know, charting people's paths through their lives to a large degree. Um, you know, we felt like that was just, you know, something that we, that needed to be kind of on the front page of every newspaper every day. And so, um, it's been hardening to see to a large degree, there's kind of these different issues in recent years that have brought some of these, these topics to the, the forefront of public consciousness. I mean, I think a lot of the political earthquakes of 2016, that was kind of a tectonic plate shifting moment there. Um, I think some of the, um, discussion around, you know, effects on children, so there are the kind of these sort of specific issues that I think have been pillars of of this kind of evangelism process. And so, so for my own part, I I, I continued on and, on and finished my doctoral work at Oxford, and then which was under Luciano Floridi, who is um, I think there's no better philosopher on on a lot of this stuff than him. Um, and so uh, that culminated in I won this kind of essay award, and, which came with a, a book deal, and so I had the The
0: Nine Dots Prize. Is that correct?
1: The Nine Dots Prize. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's um it was the first instance of that and so um it the the timing was just really it worked out really well and so a lot of the things that i had been thinking about in my my doctoral work kind of sort of were packaged in this this book that um you know it's been super heartening to see the response to that as well so i think there's a number of people um across you know across the world um advancing on many different fronts to kind of communicate these issues at the moment and really just sort of figure out how to even start talking about a lot of these these topics because i think in a lot of ways we're still figuring out the language for it mm-hmm. and uh and so so yeah it's it's been definitely heartening to to find these these other folks along the way that are responsive to this these similar you know issues and also have a passion for for trying to make progress on them
0: and the social dilemma movie of course put out by the center for humane tech just absolutely going bananas globally i mean every person i know that has even just a tiny curiosity about this topic, has watched it, is talking about it. Of course, there's limitations to the documentary, but I think the fact that it's spreading so wildly is very exciting um, in terms of conversations around the addictive nature of the platforms and also the polarization that's happening. And I want to talk to you about that a little bit. So addictive and polarizing are charges we often hear about media, and some of us may have even internalized it as a reality. But I think most people probably don't understand the specifics of it well enough to really appreciate that truth. As briefly as you can, can you explain how this technology is addictive and polarizing and why it's this way on purpose? Maybe we could talk about Facebook a little bit, maybe Twitter, the primary sort of social channels we're using.
1: Well, I mean, sort of this idea of the attention economy basically refers to the kind of this general landscape that we step into when we open you know pretty much any kind of device or platform now where what is the object of competition is our attention so the more time we spend with it you know the more we engage with it um the more of ourselves we give to it that's what it sees as success a lot of the time and so you know in, in this landscape of fierce competition like anything that that you know lets one thing win over another is going to you know is going to prevail so it just has it has to sort of you know, reach to the sort of lowest parts of us in order to win. Um, if it tries to take the high road, it's not gonna, it's not going to sort of you know have the hockey stick user adoption growth or whatever. So, so if you have to you know play dirty to win, then the technologies that play dirtiest are going to get most of our attention. And I think you know what that entails is you know playing to our our deepest fears, um, to our you know exploiting various psychological biases, sort of just psychological and design trickery. So that yeah, I mean that that's kind of to a large degree, it doesn't explain the entire picture of digital media at the moment, but I think, you know, to a large degree, that's essentially the nature of it. And I mean I think that this word addiction too, I mean, I I think there are some things that, that there are cases where people would have what, you know, maybe in a clinical sense would be we termed addiction. But I think even if it doesn't reach the point of addiction, I think there's still uh there's still enormous ethical implications if something is just You know, not addictive, but very highly compulsive or the colloquial way we use the term addiction. Yeah, I think it's it's a huge, it's like one of the biggest problems in the world, which is why I sort of veered my life course in the direction of kind of understanding it and trying to work on this stuff better.
0: And reclaim our attention. I am going to dig quite deeply into uh, excerpts from your book in a bit, but I want to talk a little bit about... um, Some people feel that we've kind of hit peak attention economy; that we can no longer pack in any more demands on human attention in a single day. I'm curious if you agree, and if the attention economy is indeed unsustainable, what do you think is next for us?
1: Well, I mean, I I don't think that we've reached sort of the the maximal exploitation of human attention yet. Wow! (laughs) Because there's more. Well, I mean, there's there's more devices and form factors, more moments in our day when we're not using technology you know like there's still like bits of us i mean they haven't quite you know encroached on on the landscape of our dreams yet but you know maybe it's coming who knows so i mean no i think we can there's still certainly more time in people's day that that can be taken up but um in terms of the sustainability i actually don't know whether it worries me more if it's if it's sustainable or unsustainable um i mean if a sustainable kind of exploitation of people's attention and distraction from you know the stuff The sort of the good stuff of life, you know, like uh, that. Mean that we shouldn't want to sustain that, but right, yeah. At the same time, it's like it it seems like it uh, shouldn't be sustainable, but um, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Basically, um, yeah. So no, I mean, I think that certainly. I mean, just if you think about like like devices and things people talk about, like you know, whether it's brain computer interfaces or these kinds of, you know, brave new world types of things, I think never underestimate the creativity of people who want to, you know, take part of your life and monetize it. So. Yeah, I mean, there's much more about the human, you know, psychology to learn.
0: I'm really curious about your own personal practice around how you use technology. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: I try to sort of avoid presenting myself as any kind of exemplar for the way things ought to be because, you know, I I deal with this stuff in my own life, too. And I mean, uh, for me, I think, it, you know, Everybody's situation is different, but I think for me, um, being a writer, you know, just sort of just naturally being around books and paper more, the more I can kind of gravitate to that, the better. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'd have like a pithy way to kind of package up my entire approach to it all. I, I wish I did, but I really kind of, <laughs> I really kind of don't. I, to, to be honest, I think like having, so we have a two-year-old son, and I think since we've had him, it's just, you know, if there's a living being that has demands on your attention, that that tends to kind of supplant the latest kind of mobile game or whatever.
0: <laughs> do you use social media? Are you on email? You know, most of the day, what does that look like?
1: No, I mean, I, I hate email. I deleted my Facebook a couple of years ago after I, well, I won't go into a lot of um, I, I, the one I have still is Twitter and I, I don't really do anything with it, but I mean, I think it, it serves a sort of different social and societal function than, than Facebook right now. Um, also just being able to kind of sort of see what's going on there sometimes is is useful but um maybe i'll delete it at some point but um i try to spend as little time in those kind of you know cognitive rooms as i i can um in terms of email i think it's the least kind of socially destructive one i think but it yeah so i I just kind of do it as as needed but i'm not particularly good at it or (laughs) anything so yeah no i mean it's um as it's tolerable i guess i kind of do it
0: You worked at Google for 10 years, is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, just over 10 years.
0: Just over 10 years. And there you said you came to understand that the technology industry wasn't designing products. It was designing users. You say these magical general purpose systems weren't neutral tools. They were purpose-driven navigation systems guiding flesh and blood human lives. I want to know, how do you feel that Google's perspective on social responsibility regarding its own innovation has evolved?
1: Well, I guess what I would say to preface is that, you know, I think the people who work at these tech companies, even ones whose products I, I think are ripping apart the social fabric. I mean, I, I think that I think they're by and large good people. Like, I don't think that any people are trying to steer other people's lives off track or whatever. I think what happens is, you know, there are business models there are organizational incentives. That then people just say, okay, my job is, you know, maximizing metric X and some engagement metric and they, they go and they get their bonus or whatever. And then there you know, things, you know, companies have these business models are committed to certain kinds of goals, which like in the quote you read are, are, they're sort of framed as these terms like engagement that are kind of euphemized in a way. Um, But, but it really amounts to sort of essentially capturing and then renting out or reselling people's, the chance to shape people's life paths, essentially. Um, but then there are other projects that, that companies do sort of as, you know, like whether it's the social responsibility stuff, and I'm sure some of it is, is good and, and, and useful. Um, but, I, but I think it, a lot of times it's sort of like, we're all a branch um, to say, here's what we're doing for the world. But I mean, I think, I think a lot of the time, sort of it, it, the question, these questions of social responsibility don't circle back to the kind of underlying business models themselves. Um, and what the kind of net effect of those high-level design design incentives and business incentives is, for like a you know, society. So um, I don't know if I could give a sort of I, have, I haven't looked at the sort of what the latest detailed kind of exposition about social responsibility projects is at the moment, but or if there's a particular one that you're referring to. Um, no, but 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 I guess broadly, like what I see, not just people but like these companies, companies in general is, I think what I would like to see is 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 the, the question of. <laughs> The business models and what what is ultimately being sort of, you know, sold What the, the effect that, that the companies are having on the world as a whole. I'd like to see that brought under the, the question of social responsibility. But obviously, that's like kind of a, a much bigger thing. So
0: what are your thoughts about professionalizing the tech industry? In what sense? Well, uh, my friend Jumana Abu Ghazala is leading the charge at Pivot for Humanity, and she believes that professionalizing the tech industry, as in everyone is called a technologist and they have a code of ethics like the medical profession does, would help eliminate sort of these silos of, I'm just trying to work on this one particular metric that they all take. They all have to take um, an oath and are intentionally thinking about what their piece of the puzzle is ultimately going to do to affect individuals' lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I talk in my book a little bit about, yeah, this idea of a Hippocratic Oath for, um, mm-hmm. for you know, designers for the tech industry and, um, you know, intervening at the level of individual designers. Um, I mean, I, I, I certainly think that it's, um, it's it's something that's good to do and, and, I'm, and I think is well-intentioned. I I feel like it in terms of kind of the structure of the problem. I think um, I don't think it's sufficient to to kind of turn the whole ship around. I mean, already you know a lot of these companies, um, you know, will have these very kind of lofty values and and sort of mission statements and slogans. And I mean, I mean that's part, almost part of the tragedy of it, right? Is like a lot of these people who are designing and and, and running these companies like feel like they're doing something good for the world. Um, And in some cases, they are. I mean, it's not like universally bad. Like there are good effects that that some of this stuff can have. But um, and it could be worse. Like we could be in a situation with like tobacco companies where they're just like, no, we want people to to smoke. You know. Um, So I mean, at least there's like a desire to 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 have some kind of good social impact. Um, But I mean, at at the end of the day, it's like you know, even if somebody takes a uh, an oath or has a code or or whatever, you know, if their manager is saying you need to do this by the end of the quarter, right? And you know. Their salary is based on how well they do that thing. Um, you know, it, it, W. Edwards Deming, you know, had this that, quote a, a bad system will beat a good person every time. Um, and I think a bad system will beat, you know, good, well intentioned kind of interventions at the level of individual com- contributors and designers every time.
0: The JomoCast is a listener supported. Each episode takes up to 40 hours to create and involves the work of our composer and producer Tom, social media lead Rebecca, and me. We believe there are new and even more urgent questions to be asked now about digital well-being, given that most of us will need to depend almost exclusively on digital channels for social support for the foreseeable future. On the podcast, we answer questions like, how can I stop comparing online? and trust that I am enough? How do I shift my attention from passively consuming online to creatively connecting with neighbors and loved ones? How do I build the self-discipline to see things through? How do I stay on track doing the things I say I want to do without getting hijacked online? This podcast is made possible by you, our incredible listeners all over the world, from Brazil to Australia, the USA to Singapore. Please support the JomoCast for just $3 a month. Visit patreon.com forward slash JomoCast and sign up today. You will get Jomo swag and a handwritten note of thanks from me in the mail. A shout out on the podcast and a place on the JOMO wall of thanks for all of time. You'll also have the opportunity to ask future guests your questions and get uncut video of all the JOMOcast interviews. To sign up, go to patreon.com forward slash JOMOcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash JOMOcast. And thank you for supporting the content that supports you. So let's talk about self-regulation. You say the new challenges we face in the age of attention are on both individual and collective levels, challenges of self-regulation. What do you mean?
1: So one of the foundational kind of um, concepts in in my book that I talk about is this observation of uh, Herbert Simon, the kind of economist um, in the 70s, where he said, you know, information abundance becomes makes attention the scarce resource. And you know, I think what the kind of digital world has done is it, you know, it's it's sort of broken down these boundaries that were there previously. Um, whether that's specific boundaries in the forms of media, different contexts of life now blending together, the boundaries between us and information, between us and being able to you know contact other people, everything is kind of now, you know, if the problem before was scarcity of connectedness, scarcity of information, now the the problem is the opposite. It's it's an overabundance of connectedness and information and so w- what that means is that you know if before it was our environment that you know, had these boundaries in it that was doing that kind of regular regulatory work for us now it's sort of we, we have to kind of bring that ourselves and put those boundaries in place ourselves so there's a kind of kind of work a kind of effort that we have to do now that we wouldn't have to do you know as much of in the past so so the way I kind of I use the metaphor of the video game tetris uh, in my book where you know it's it's sort of it, it, you know stuff keeps coming faster and faster and uh, you know the blocks keep falling and at a certain point our capacities for for managing it all if we try to manage it all like kind of get overwhelmed so so essentially then you know it's about being intentional about what boundaries we put in our own lives so yeah so this idea that just an overabundance of stimuli of information of of connectedness puts new challenges of setting these boundaries Uh, or, you know, self-regulation on our plate, yeah, to a really large degree.
0: What's an example of a boundary that would have been there before that we would have to replace with something new?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, one that certainly many people are now, uh, you know, dealing with in the the COVID, you know, era is is the kind of the work home boundary. I mean, it's, you know, in the past, you know, I feel like we have these contexts of life, you know, in order to sort of, Kind of foster certain different psychological worlds within them, uh, or to be useful for certain sets of goals. And um, you know, now it's like if sort of your your home is your work, and you know, or there's a part of your home where you're doing the work, and it's you know, you want to have this completely different kind of psychological world there where you can actually get stuff done, and it's not responding to family members or whatever, uh, you know, distractions every five seconds. And so then you have to be you know much more intentional about setting that boundary than you would. If you just went into the you know, the office and of course there are certainly benefits for people who you know work at home and so you might prefer to do that um so it is not to say that it's one is good and the other is bad it's just that if you go in into an office somewhere and work, then there's a whole sort of set of structural you know boundaries and and constraints that are in place there that you know you just don't have to think about but then you know if you try start working from home as probably you know many of your listeners who Have made that transition um, realize, like you know, there's just a whole other kind of you know cognitive load effort that you have to get get through before you can even start in on the work.
0: Related to this exact conversation, you quote Neil Levy's neuroethics in your book, where he says autonomy is developmentally dependent upon the environment. We become autonomous individuals able to control our behaviors in the light of our values. Only if the environment in which we grow up is suitably structured to reward self control. So, this whole conversation around self regulation and self control, I mean, this is really the crux of your book, right?
1: Yeah, it's certainly a a big piece of it. Um, Yeah, this idea that, I mean, we know, like, you know, we put people in different environments and they'll behave differently. Um, And if there are sort of these procedural aspects of our lives that we think are are good regardless of what somebody thinks like well-being is for them or the good life is regardless of what you think you know it's autonomy is good um, uh, to help you pursue that you know you know being able to reason being able to consider different possibilities to imagine different possible futures that's a useful skill regardless of what you think the good life is so um so if we think that there are these good you know procedural kind of goods in life um you know we ought to want our environments to be structure to help us develop those and and maintain those. And um and I think that's one of the challenges of of you know this kind of the last couple of decades, you know, sort of the digital revolution, I guess you could say. But it's, you know, a lot of these these previous kind of constraints in our world, um, social, physical, otherwise, kind of just falling all at once and all of this, you know, sort of the armies of information kind of rush in. Um and so I think we're just kind of right now it feels like getting over the shock of that of those walls falling and kind of all of these different persuasive forces coming in um so it, it's almost like a kind of it feels like a, almost a kind of like hypnosis mode the last few years uh, at least this is how i felt it in my own life and I, you know like McLuhan, you know other great canadian um you know, talked about this back in the 60s when some new medium comes onto the stage there's just this kind of blast of you know of stimuli of, of kind of confusion that he could like into hypnosis you know before you kind of figure out how to deal with it how to engage with it in a way that or redesign it if needed in a way that aligns with your values your, your goals and what you take well-being to be
0: hmm. you write we have not been primed either by nature or habit to notice much less struggle against these new persuasive forces that so deeply shape our attention our action, and our lives. And you say this problem is not just new in scale, but also in kind. The empires of the present are the empires of the mind. Can you unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as other people have kind of made this point as well, but like, you know, if you were to think of like Facebook or Twitter or Google or, you know, these large, you know, tech companies as as being like countries, they would be more populous than most countries. But there, I think there would also be a kind of influence they have over people's lives that, in certain ways, is, is of a much greater degree than countries. Not in every way. I mean, it it, it might even be closer to something like you know a uh, religion or maybe even like a language. I don't know. I like I don't think we have a right like like a good sort of conceptual I guess category for this yet. Um, I think so. That's kind of what I was getting at. You know, like Churchill's is sort of. you know empires of the future are the empires of the mind i mean and he was talking about language actually in that speech so you know i I think our lives are so cut through with these things that we give so much of our time to and i mean i just feel like if you look at how much time we give to them and sort of the ways in which they shape the not just even our behaviors but sort of just the the biases the sort of assumptions that we then start to live by um, and you compare that with like what what actual say do we have and their design like what actual at least for you know a country you know basically we have kind of you know manipulation without representation uh when it comes to these technologies and we're kind of citizens de facto citizens of some kind of new um you know some kind of new thing which of course intersects with all with you know the economic um kind of systems and models and all this but i think this is where i feel like i part of my book was just trying to do a sort of a certain kind of grappling with (laughs) like what actually is just is this like what is this world that we've Inherited, um, uh, so, so yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's it's just trying to figure out what are we, what is this thing, what is our relation with it, and how do we, how do we sort of bring it more in line with what we want the world to be.
0: I want to dig into your book. Stand out of our light. Probably my biggest takeaway from your book was your question: What do you pay when you pay attention? I don't know why I'd never, ever stop to think about that phrase, pay attention, because I probably say it, you know, a dozen times a week. It's something that I think about all the time. But what do you ask? What do you pay when you pay attention? You say you pay with all the things you could have attended to but didn't, all the goals you didn't pursue, all the actions you didn't take, and all the possible use you could have been had you attended to those other things. Attention is paid in possible futures foregone. You pay for that extra Game of Thrones episode with the heart-to-heart talk you could have had with your anxious child. You pay for that extra hour on social media with the sleep you didn't get and the fresh feeling you didn't have the next morning. You pay for giving in to that outrage-inducing piece of clickbait about that politician you hate with the patience and empathy it took from you and your anger at yourself for allowing yourself to take the bait in the first place we pay attention with the lives we might have lived james the stakes couldn't be higher
1: <laughs> yeah no i mean it's um it's hard to imagine how they they could be higher i think um i'm glad this resonated with you i mean this one thing i i wanted the book to do is i think sort of like uh, kind of uplevel the kind of the region within which we talk about some of these issues like attention or distraction or because there's a kind of very highly psychologized way that it's normally talked about, um, not just in the tech industry, but, you know, just kind of in life in general. But at the same time there, you know, there's this very long, you know, tradition across cultures and, you know, in human human history that, you know, what we give attention to is, is in a real sense, like what we are. Um, and, you know, I think a lot, there's been, you know, some people have kind of addressed this question of, you know, what is, tension how do we kind of conceptualize it to what extent can it be quantified you know what kind of indicator i think these are important questions but i think from a kind of the, the point of view of kind of the existential question of like you know for my like why should i care what's at stake i guess at the end of the day it's like you know if there are these you know you stand at kind of this precipice of you know the future and there are all these forking paths this whole you know thousands of forking paths before you of like what you could spend today doing and then You commit yourself to one path and you can't go back, you know, and along the path, there are these kinds of, you know, traps laid to get you to go one way or the other, or, you know, people to stop you and delay you, you know, so it's, if we think of it kind of this way, then I don't know, it's, it's sort of, if life is the narrative of of that path that we want to take and that we actually do take, um, attention just seems to me to be about kind of something about the process for how and why and where we take which path. And, you know, where we end up at the end of the day.
0: I'm going to end with a final section from your book. It's a little shorter, but it's still pretty lengthy. You say, some threats to freedom we recognize immediately. Others take time to reveal themselves for what they are. For too long, we've minimized the personal and political threats of this intelligent adversarial persuasion as mere distraction or minor annoyance. In the short term, these challenges can indeed frustrate our ability to do the things we want to do. In the longer term, however, they can make it harder for us to live the lives we want to live, or even worse, undermine fundamental capacities such as reflection and self-regulation, making it harder, in the words of philosopher Harry Frankfurt, to want what we want to want. Seen in this light, These new attentional adversaries threaten not only the success, but even the integrity of the human will at both individual and collective levels. And here is my question James, what is the way forward? How can we personally and collectively reclaim our light, as you call it? Where do we start?
1: So, one of the things I wanted to do with with the book was, as I said, come up with just a way to just start by talking about all of this stuff. Because, you know, if it's like we can't really address a problem, Move forward on it organize take action if we can't sort of usefully talk about it and I think that you know we're, we're kind of in a situation where we have to start working on it while we figure out how to talk about it you know we don't have the luxury of, of time to do do one before the other but 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 I do think that you know it's it's been interesting to me just you know especially in the domain of tech to you know to see when these new words come up that describe sort of new experiences that we have. we hadn't had before and and we suddenly gain a way to kind of work with them and and manage them and move them around and i don't think it's an i I hope it's not an invasive answer to your question but I, i really think that that language language is is extremely important in this and just being able to to say what what is going on and you know we don't have to do it perfectly but just enough to enough to enable us to kind of keep top of mind what's at stake so obviously that's not sufficient it's i think it's necessary but it's not sufficient to to fix all this and i don't think there is one answer but i think it seems to me that though the the shape of the answer the the process of getting to the answer is is one that won't be about it it, it won't be sort of it won't be kind of like everything you know dawning in one epiphany all at once or some new product comes out and fixes everything or you know i I guess what i'm saying is i don't it won't be sort of it won't fit a heroic narrative um i think it will come if it comes which i hope it does it will will be the product of you know collective action um among many passionate people who care about this who couldn't see the end result when they're working on it but but you know knew it was there and um you know like like you know most most of you know andy's kind of greatest you know social advances um have been so so i think it'll just be the hard work of um, you know, a lot of people, you know, in, in kind of just ordinary life in academia, thinking about the stuff in the tech industry, advocating for stuff. I think it's just going to be like a lot of passionate people somehow moving the needle, you know, taking the opportunity when, when, you know, everything changes on a dime. And I don't want to con- try to contemplate the alternative, you know, if we, if we can't figure this out. So, yeah, sorry. That was like a really windy answer wasn't it
0: it was a very big question it was sort of like how do we solve this global all-encompassing problem it wasn't very fair to you
1: it was like that was like the answer was like kind of like like live live from the covid lockdown <laughs> answer um yeah i guess to be to me more pretty i think that there are many answers that many people will, will move toward and work toward it's not it's, it's not, i don't think it's really clear to anyone yet but i think whatever, they, whatever the whatever they that answer is it will be something that isn't merely political, isn't merely technical, isn't merely social. but it's something that, that like will have, have to reach us in our deepest place because I I don't know I think that's the the only thing that can really <laughs> make a difference.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to say one thing about what I love about the way you think about these things is you ground it in reality. Even the example they use in your book about GPS that we wouldn't tolerate a GPS right that is like you know, blipping like every five seconds, telling you to go somewhere where you never actually set it, you know, set course. We wouldn't tolerate that for a second. And yet we tolerate it in all the platforms we use on a regular basis. That's something grounded in reality that we can, you know, think about very tangibly in your example about just walking down the path. Like I think the more that we ground this conversation in a human experience and like you said, take it out of the space of technological platitudes then we have a chance, I believe, of making effective change, both personally and in our communities. I think it starts with us and our local communities. That's what I truly believe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this this idea of finding good metaphors for this new the new things is also really useful. I mean, I think it was Gordon Pask, the cyberneticist, who said, um, cybernetics is the art and science of manipulating defensible metaphors. Um, and I think that that's uh, that's one really great way of, yeah, of, of of making these abstract things, these kind of virtual things are real in our day-to-day lives. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I agree with your, your point about the kind of local, just people getting together, you know, organization. I mean, that's, I think that's where it's at.
0: Mm-hmm. Reclaiming those, yeah, those local human connections and making them much more exciting than scrolling the infinite scroll.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, somehow bringing the fulfilling nature of them into meaningful competition with the entertaining stimuli and all that stuff.
0: James, thanks so much for being with me today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes and by visiting jomocast.com. And for extended show notes and full transcripts, join the Patreon. The JomoCast is edited and music composed by Thomas J. Inge. Visit tinge.com. That is T-I-N-D-G-E dot com to learn more about Tom and his services. The JomoCast is listener supported. Sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash JomoCast. Patreon support makes the podcast possible. For just $3 a month, you will keep these conversations going. That link again is patreon.com forward slash JomoCast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast with your provider of choice. And if you loved this episode, leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. These reviews are a powerful way you can help us reach more listeners. I'm your host, Christina Crook. Thanks for listening and may you find joy missing out on the right things.